You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're beginning a new study of the ups and downs of David's life. We're calling Hills and Valleys. With this week's message, here's senior pastor Lance Bourgeois. I bet you if I were to ask you, what's your favorite genre of movie? My guess is every person in here would say something. There'd be some people that said, life's so hard, I just need comedies. I need to laugh when I get a chance to watch a movie. There'd be some that are action adventure people. And when you think it, I want to see superheroes, I want to see it going, I want to see all of the action. If there are some of you, it's not me, I do not like horror movies. I do not need to pay money to go get scared. That's not my thing. What I really do love, though, I love dramas. I love movies that are based on a true life event, a real story, something that actually happened. And so one of the things that happened is last weekend, my son asked me on Saturday, Dad, what would you like to do for Father's Day? And I was thinking, I love going to the movies. I hadn't been to a movie in a long, long time. And so decided to look up movie listings and saw a movie that was playing. I had not heard of the movie. I didn't know it was out. And I didn't know the story, but it grabbed my attention. It was called The Twelve Mighty Orphans. Now, as I tell you this, I'm going to tell you this as well. I'm not going to give away anything about this movie that is not actually printed in the About This Movie section. So if you look it up and you see it, you're going to hear what I, you will read what I'm about to tell you. In this movie, it tells the story of these 12 uh, orphans that go out for this football team. They take a football coach that was a popular, successful football coach in in um, in Texas high school football, and they bring him down to come be their coach. And so nobody knew this story. They didn't know his story. That comes out in the course of of the movie, but when they start off and they decide they're going to have a football team, the players, the boys come together and they start having conversations about what if you played football? And all of a sudden it got them out of other jobs they didn't want. That was the compelling factor. But the other thing that happened in the course of this was they go out for the football team and they recognize some of these boys don't have cleats. They certainly don't have uniforms. Matter of fact, they didn't even have a football. At one point, there was one football, it got popped, and so all of a sudden, they're playing with a paper mache football that has a sack of flour in it. It's quite a story. It's a story of an underdog. In the movie, you see them go, and they take on some powerhouses. The movie is set coming out of the Depression, so it's late 30s. And all of a sudden, what you see in the course of this is you see this, this football team that they called the Mighty Mites. You see the mighty mites come all the way to the forefront and they make it all the way to the state championship game in Texas. Part of why I love it is it's an underdog. It's an underdog. It was about a group of kids that were forgotten about that nobody expected anything from. Nobody had any thoughts about and they were overlooked. And then all of a sudden everything changed because what we recognize is this. It's not always about what we see. Sometimes it's about that heart that's on the inside, and you and I can't see hearts. We can't measure what's inside. Well, we're going to start this new series this morning. I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16 as we start this new series this morning. In this series, we're talking about a great underdog. You probably know the story at some level of King David. What you may not know is the underdog that he was. You may not even catch the story of how he comes to be. 
and what God has to do and how God's at work in his life. Well, we're going to start there this morning because over the next bunch of weeks, we're going to be studying his life. And you're probably familiar with some of who he is. But maybe you don't know this. Maybe you don't know this underdog and how he came to be. We're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. I'll stop for a second. Because as he says, we've got to come over there. This is a time of national transition. And I don't know if you recognize, but national transitions can be hard for, for a country. And so they're going through this. And something has gone on. We don't know all that's gone on. But what we know is this. Samuel's been a prophet, and he's been the prophet to the king who was Saul. And what we know is this transition's coming. And God's calling Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over this? And we don't know all that's going on in his grief. We're not told all of that. But we do know that it's a tough time because at the end of it, he says, fill your horn with oil. I'm going to send you. And then he says, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, all of a sudden, what we have is this moment where we've got him going to Jesse. And Jesse has some sons. There's plural He's going to go, and he says, I'm going to, I've provided a king for myself. I want you to go there. You're going to go anoint this king because something's changed. What changed? If you looked up at one verse at the end of chapter 15, you have these compelling words. They're tragic words, make no mistake. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Lord regretted that. Now, if you know the history of Israel, you know that God's desire was to be the king over his people. That had always been his heart. And the people said, no, 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 we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. So God gave them the king that they wanted, Saul. And it's a tragic tale of what goes on here. If you go back, we see part of what happened in 1 Samuel 13. This is to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. There's your clue. Saul was not a man after God's own heart. Saul had other agendas. Saul had other plans. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. And all of a sudden what we see is this idea. God says, I gave you the king you wanted. I wanted to be your king. You wanted a human king. I gave you a human king who you wanted. And this has not gone the way that I wanted it to go. Because that king is intended to represent me. That king is intended to represent my heart for you as my people. I need a man his heart after mine. That's not a phrase we use a whole lot. I wonder if you think in terms of what it means. Well, Chuck Swindoll gives us an idea of what it means. He says this, what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Seems to me it means that you're a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What's important to you is, what is important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. When he says, go to the right, you go to the right. And when he says, stop that in your life, you stop it. And when he says, this is wrong, I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. 
I think Swindoll captures that really well for us when we look back and we say, okay, so when God says to Saul, I'm taking the kingdom away from you, I want a man in that role that will love me and serve me, that has a heart after me, that when I say go right, he goes right. He doesn't question it. He doesn't think through it. He doesn't need to analyze it. I laid on his heart to go right. I want him to go right. Saul, that's not you. That's why I'm taking the kingdom away from you. And all of a sudden, we have a new king who's coming to be. And what we know, you're going to go to Jesse, Samuel, and you're going to meet his sons. I'm going to point out to you which son it is, and you're going to anoint him. And all of a sudden, we've got a new king coming to be. Not now. There's still a lot of things that have to play itself out. But we're going to know who the king is by the end of this chapter. Look down with me, if you would, at verse 2. And Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears it? He will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have to come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for him, for me, him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling, saying, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his son and invited them to the sacrifice. You see why he's scared? You want me to go anoint the next king? Saul is still king. That's treason. If Saul finds out about it, he's going to kill me. It's too risky. I don't know what you're asking me to do. But I don't know that I can do it. God says, let me give you the plan. Here's the plan, Samuel. You're going to go, but you're going to bring an animal. So it's gonna, you're going to go offer a sacrifice. Now, that's, that's not the whole job that you're going to do, but that's a significant thing that you're going to do. You're going to go and offer a sacrifice. And so when you go into town, if somebody is scared, if somebody questions you, you're going to tell them, I'm here to offer a sacrifice. So all of a sudden, he starts, he starts to come into town. And all of a sudden, what ends up happening is the elders of the city meet him at the gate because sometimes when prophets came to town, it meant judgment was coming. Something bad was going to happen. Not always, but it was frequent enough. So Samuel gets there. He's got his heifer. The people of the elders of the city come out to the gate and they see him and they're like, why are you here? You come peaceably? He says, oh yeah, I've come in peace. I'm not trying to stir anything up. I'm not coming to bring judgment. He didn't tell him the whole story. I'm here to anoint a new king, but I'm here to offer a sacrifice. And by the way, consecrate yourself. Let's go do that sacrifice. And by the way, Jesse, family, why don't you come with us? And we're going to go take part of this. God doesn't call him to deceive anybody. God gives him the plan. This is a plan for how it's going to work. And all of a sudden, they move into this. Look down with me, if you would, at verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. I want to stop because remember the words? Saul looked the part of king. Saul looked the part of king. That's what got them in trouble already. So when Samuel goes, God says, I'm going to point out to you who it is. Go meet with Jesse and his boys, and I'm going to point it out. And aren't we glad that the Lord points it out? Because all of a sudden, the first son comes up, and Samuel looks at him like, well, this, this looks like a king. That's what got them into trouble with Saul. 
When he came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Because you can't always see when somebody's got a heart for the Lord, can you? See, that's that underdog. We can't measure that which is inside. He looks the part, but is he the part? Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel, you're not, we're not going down this path again of where somebody has the appearance of king, but they lack the internal heart to walk with me. This king is to represent me. I need somebody that's going to walk with me so they can lead my people the way I would lead my people. Doesn't matter what his appearance is. I'm after something more than appearance. You look at his appearance, Samuel. That's not what I look at. I look for something deeper. I look for the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. I'm sure Jesse thought, well, certainly it's going to be Eliab too. Okay, well, let me go for number two. Let's take a swing at this one. And so he calls in the next son, Benadab, made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse's like, all right, well, let's try again. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And, the Lord, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Seven of them in a row coming through. Samuel's looking at them. Samuel learned a lesson pretty quickly. On the first one, Samuel knows it's not about what they look like. It's not even what I think about them. The Lord looks at the heart. I'm incapable of seeing the person that God wants. I can't see it. I look at the appearance. God looks at the heart. I can't even tell you who. So I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to listen because I'm dependent on the Lord to show me who it is. One by one, seven of them walk by. And he finally looks around and is like, it's none of these. It's none of them. Is there anybody left? Verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? Is this it? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. You see that? Jesse didn't even send for David. He didn't even send for him. Let me line up my seven sons. If one of my sons is going to be king, it's going to be one of these seven. That's who it's going to be. So David, he's out in the back pasture. He's keeping watch over the flock. We don't need him. He doesn't even matter. You want to talk about being overlooked. You want to talk about being an underdog. You want to talk about somebody that apparently didn't have the appearance of being king. I'll add in that in this culture is the, the older sons were obviously the privileged. So why would you think you'd go to son number eight? You wouldn't. So they don't even call him in. Everything's different. You go get him and bring him here. We're not going to do anything we're not even going to sit down until he comes. Verse 12, and he sent him and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had a beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now that makes me laugh because we've already told, been told the Lord doesn't care about appearances. He looks at the heart. And then we get a description of what David looks like. He's outdoorsy, he's good looking, he's got beautiful eyes. And we have this great picture of who he is. 
recognize that's not what qualifies you to be the king. What qualifies is the heart after the Lord. See, the other seven could have had the physical appearance. None of them had the heart after the Lord. Saul didn't. The first seven didn't. It wasn't that David was horrible to look at. He just was the one that had the right heart. And the Lord is going before him in this. And so when he comes in, the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Last year, we studied Joseph out of Genesis. And if you were here for us, as we talked about Joseph, you probably caught the idea that Joseph was his father's favorite. Isn't it interesting? Is I don't know what your family of origin looks like. If you were the favored child or if you were the forgotten child. But whether or not you were Joseph, the favored child who had the carpet rolled out for him and led him into leadership, or if you're David, you're the forgotten youngest out in the pasture that doesn't even get summoned for the possible kingship, recognize this. Whatever your family of origin situation is, it does not determine your path of faithfulness, and it does not determine your path of what the Lord can do in you or through you. Whether you're Joseph or whether you're David, we've risen to a level of leadership based on who those people are. Now, what's interesting is we can talk about perception or we can talk about reality. Perception is how we interpret what we see going on around us, right? That's perception. Reality is what is. Perception is how we interpret it. You know how you know the difference? If there were no humans on earth, there would still be reality. But with humans, all of a sudden, we have perceptions. And David didn't fit anybody's perception of what a king should be. And now all of a sudden we're met with this idea. Could God do something here that was going to be different outside of what they do? And you see what happens there at the end of verse 13? All of a sudden in that moment, the Spirit comes upon David and Samuel departs. We're not told much about Samuel after this. This was the the climax of his of his ministry as a prophet, identifying the next king who was a man after God's own heart. He shows back up when Saul dies, but all of a sudden he's identified the next king. He's anointed the next king, and all of a sudden we have Samuel leave, and he, he steps out of the picture. His ministry, for the most part, is done at this point. From the time of David's anointing, the Holy Spirit has come upon him, and David's life begins to change. That's how we're going to get our new king. The question remains for us, right? How do you get him into the palace? Because he's just a little boy. He's youngest of eight. the son of Jesse. How do we get him into the palace? God's identified him as king. How do we get him into the palace? God chose David. And then through God's providence, through seemingly A random act of chance, which God doesn't work through random acts of chances. God gets him into the palace. Are you ready? Look with me down at verse 14, if you would. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So let's stop there for a second, right? The spirit comes upon David, Samuel departs. The spirit that had been on Saul now leaves, and we find 
Saul in a position where his spirit is being troubled, tormented. Now, as we look at this phrase, if you look back down, we're told it's a harmful spirit. I will tell you, nowhere else in the Scriptures do we have this phrase in the Old Testament. We don't have it anywhere. What does it mean? Is this from the Lord? Does the Lord send tormenting spirits to people? This is an important theological question. Is this who our God is? I think a couple of things that are probably worth us thinking through. What we know is this. You may have heard me say it before. You can choose your behaviors, but you can't choose your consequences. And so when we have people who choose wayward paths, you could end up with a, with a consequence that you don't want. That could be part of it. It could be that it's in the natural course of events that this had always been there. It had been latent in Saul, and now all of a sudden it's beginning to manifest itself because once the Spirit left him, is now all of a sudden it had free reign in him. Maybe there was a genetic thing. We don't know. But what we do know is this. God is capable of using anything and everything at his disposal to bring people to himself. That's who he is. And so when we come to this, we all of a sudden look and we see the spirit departed. Now I've got to ask you, how do we process that? Maybe you're familiar with Psalm 5111. This is David after his sin with Bathsheba when he writes, creating me a clean heart, if you're familiar with that psalm. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. What's going on? Do we ever have to pray that? Does the New Testament believer ever have to pray that? And if you have prayed it, let me encourage you with this. You never, as a New Testament believer, have to make that prayer. This was a different system. This is under the old covenant. The Holy Spirit would come upon people for a time, for an episode, for a, for a scene that was going on in their life. It was a divine empowerment for the person to do what God was calling them to do. For Saul, it was to be the leader and the king of my people. My Holy Spirit will come upon you for a season while you're the king because I've got a divine calling on your life and you need divine empowerment. And so all of a sudden what we see is the, the Spirit was on King Saul until God removed that throne from him. You want to talk about scary days, the day that Saul was still literally sitting on the throne, but the Spirit had departed from him. He's no longer divinely empowered to do the role that God's calling him to do. See, in Psalm 51, what we have is this is David after his sin with Bathsheba, and his prayer is, create in me a clean heart, O God, and please do not let this sin, this grievous sin in my life, cost me my kingship. That's what this prayer is. This is not anything that the New Testament believer has. How do I know? Well, there's other places where we see it. Here it is with Gideon. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion to pieces. God's Spirit would come upon people for an episode or for a gifting that they needed. You want to talk about the New Testament believer? If you were here with us when we studied Ephesians, you saw us talk through this. When you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. You can't lose the Holy Spirit. That's not there. That's not possible for us. You see, when we talk about our faith and the assurance of your salvation, what you and I need to understand is this, is that the Holy Spirit was given not only to seal you in, but it was given as a down payment for your salvation. A down payment is still 
has to be substantial towards the total price, but it also based on the character of the purchaser. The purchaser is God. The payment is the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit given is a down payment. You are safe. The New Testament believer never has to pray for God to take for, for God not to take away the Holy Spirit. That's just not part of our reality. It is part of what's going on here. Look at what continues to happen in the story. So the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, verse 14, a harmful spirit torments him. Why? Because God is capable of using whatever he has presented for his good purposes. Verse 16, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. See how God's at work? The spirit is there, is tormenting him. He's struggling. It has him in a bad place. And all of a sudden, there's somebody that says, you know what? When we play music for you, you seem to be in a better place. We need to find somebody that can play some music. Because if we find somebody who can play music for you, then things are going to get better. So all of a sudden, verse 17, so Saul said to his servant, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. All right, I'm all in on this plan. I'm struggling so greatly, I will do anything. If that might work, then bring me that person. Verse 18, one of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. See, there's our chance, right? No, God's in control, but God is leading in this because that's what God does for people who have a heart after him. David doesn't need to go fight. He doesn't need to go battle. You know what David already knows? David already knows he's the next king. He's not taking matters into his own hands. He's not trying to manipulate. He's not trying to scheme. He's not doing any of that. He's just being faithful. He's just being faithful right where he is. And when all of a sudden somebody says, you know what we need? We need a musician. We need somebody to alleviate the pain and the struggle that you're dealing with, Saul. And he says, okay, I'm in. Go find me somebody. And there's somebody that says, you know, I know someone. Let me tell you about him. And I don't know what Saul would have thought about musicians, but you know what Saul is going to be drawn to? Look at that description of him in verse 18. He's a musician, but militarily, he's a man of valor. He's a man of war. Socially, he speaks well. You can trust him in the court. Physically, he's a man of good presence. Spiritually, the Lord is with him. See how all that plays itself out? Everything is going on in this story. Saul is struggling. Why is Saul struggling? Well, we've got a few reasons. Maybe it could be. Romans 1, I think Paul talks to us about this. As we see that part of what God, what Saul is dealing with, the whole you can choose your behaviors but not choose your consequences, I think this is part of it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their uprightness suppress the truth. So we see God's judgment is setting in on Saul. It drops down, for although they knew God, and Saul did, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, and that is true of Saul, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What does that lead to? Now, if you've read Romans chapter 1, 
You may be familiar with this idea that we're told that God keeps giving them over to their passion. Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them up, is that there was a, a new plateau in their sin and in their unrighteousness. In God's wrath, he turns them over to their sin. So God says, you know what? I'm not going to stop you. You think you want that? I'm going to let you have that. It's not going to fulfill you. And in that, in their quest for more, two verses later, for this reason, God gave them up a second time. There was a pursuit of righteousness, and then God judged them, and then there is a turning over, and then what they did was they embraced that, then there's a second turning over two verses later, and then two verses later, there's a third turning over, and they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and God gave them up again. See how far we are? If you're Saul, you know that the the Spirit has departed you know that you're losing the kingship. You know God has, wants somebody that has a heart after him. He knows he sits in judgment. And all of a sudden, when we come to this passage and we see that not only is David militarily strong, socially strong, physically strong, he is spiritually strong. You want to talk about welcoming somebody into your palace, somebody into your court? David fits the bill perfectly. Everything you could want It's not just that he's a musician. That's enough. It helps him. But he's also all these other things. See how God goes before him? Because God honors the men and women who have a heart after him. God puts the men and women who have a heart after him in the right place for them to have influence and impact. Look at what happens. Drop down to verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, verse 19. So therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Send me this man. I need this man. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to Saul. And David came to Saul, entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Jesse had some level of means all of his boys. There was some level of means because he could, he could give those animals and he could send gifts with David. And Jesse knew, Jesse knew that David's the next king. He was there when he got anointed. And what a moment when Saul, the current king, who we know is the outgoing king, although Saul wouldn't have known that. He wouldn't have known it. He just says, send me your son, David. And for those of us that have the full story, we're like, look at what God's doing. Look at what God's doing. He's managed to get Saul to choose David. And all of a sudden, in he comes into the court. How did he do? David came to Saul. He entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. See how God's at work? See that, that comment about the Lord is with him. The Lord's just doing his thing. He's finding him faithful, and he's going about it. I think McCarty, McCarter says it well when he says, the comment for the Lord is with him explains all of the previous parts. The young man's success, strengths, manners, and his looks are all the result of divine favor. The Lord honors those who walk with him. Male, female, to have a heart after him, that when he says stop, we stop. When he says go right, we go right. That's what our calling is. David has been faithful to do those things. And look at what the Lord has done for him. All of a sudden, everything 
is working out for him. By chance? No. This is years and years of faithfulness and obedience for, for David of doing what the Lord calls him to do. And look at the Lord honor him. Saul loved him greatly, and David became his armor bearer. What a great moment. Verse 22. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he's found favor in my sight. I don't want him to leave. I like rubbing shoulders with David. Why? Because it's the strength of the character of who David is. All that he brought to the table, Saul is benefiting from. Saul didn't have a heart to follow the Lord, but he, when he, he knew something good when he saw it. And all of a sudden, he says, I want him to stay. Don't take him away from me. I want to keep him. Verse 23, and whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre, he played it with his hand, so Saul was refreshed, refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Why did they bring him in? There were other men of war. There were other people who were mighty men of valor. There were other people who would have been a good presence. There were other people who spoke well. There could have been other people that you would have said the Lord was with them. I mean, he could have said that about Samuel. But he was fulfilling a purpose. Because every time he played, that spirit that was tormenting him departed. That was why David was brought in. And it's doing what they, David's accomplishing what they brought him in to accomplish. And all of a sudden, what we see is God's at work doing what he does, taking the opportunity to go before his children who follow him and walk with him in such a way that he places them where he wants them to accomplish his purposes. Saul doesn't even know what's going on. Other than that, just in the presence of David, when he plays, I feel better. And that begins to be who David is. Now, what's interesting is because he's this musician, is think about what you know about the book of Psalms. If you know King David as the psalmist, not all of them, a lot of them, most of them, if you know him as a psalmist, is it any surprise that God is using David with musical instrument and with lyrics to accomplish his purposes? I don't know if what he's playing here are psalms that he's already written. We don't know if these are psalms yet to be recorded or if these were his ones growing and developing him as the psalmist. But isn't it interesting? Is that the impact of a faithful believer in the life of another makes all the difference in the world? I got to tell you, I don't know what psalm. If you're acquainted with the psalms, there are psalms that probably stand out to you. Psalms that you love, that have brought you comfort. Because I don't know what's going on with, with Saul. We don't know. We know that he's got this harmful spirit. Some translations talk about it as a depression or an anxiety. Maybe, maybe that was it. Maybe that was in his, his chemistry. We don't know. But he's struggling with it. And when he heard the word of God, when he heard the psalmist, even though he's not the psalmist at this time, he found comfort. Maybe you've been there. Psalm 62, 1 and 2, For God alone my soul waits in silence. 
From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation and my fortress. I have gone to that verse for 35 years in my life. I love it. I find hope because who else am I waiting for? And God doesn't respond when I scream the loudest or scream the most. I'm going to wait for him to work. And there are times where I do that better than others. There are times when I don't do it at all. But I know this is when I wait for him, he always shows up. And from him comes my salvation because he is my rock and my salvation and my fortress. I understand Saul is that when I'm being tormented by whatever I'm struggling with and whatever that crisis is, I too go to David and I find his words to be a comfort for my soul. I guess as you do too. And that's part of it. That's part of how God works in the life of another. Now I got to tell you, I skipped this earlier. You know how old David was when he got anointed as king? Twelve. Twelve years old. And you wonder why you don't put a 12-year-old on the throne immediately? He's going to have to walk with that. He's going to have to live in the waiting. He's going to have to live in the reality of what we just talked about. My soul waits on the Lord. I'm waiting on Him because I know at 12 I'm the next king, but it's not my time yet. And I'm not going to maneuver or scheme or deceive or manipulate. I'm just going to wait on the Lord. And I'm going to wait for him to bring it about. This was always about him. I never wanted the throne. I just wanted to be faithful. I was a man after God's own heart at 12. That was already true about him. Just being faithful. At 12. Two realities going on in this story. One, David was not scheming. This wasn't him. This wasn't a hostile takeover. This wasn't a coup. This wasn't an agenda. This was him walking with God. The second part is God is faithfully orchestrating on behalf of his faithful child. Sure, Saul has no idea. The world would never know when God's faithfully orchestrating. That's not between them and the Lord. Saul doesn't know. And to Saul, it just seems like random chance. For those of us that know the whole story, we know it's not random chance. I mean, seriously, what are the odds that there's somebody in the court that's like, well, you know, I know a guy. I just know a guy. Sure, he can play, but, you know, he's a mighty man of valor. He's a soldier. He's a man of war. He speaks well. He has a good disposition. And by the way, the Lord's with him. And so I was like, that's enough for me. Go back. You had me at the liar, right? He can play. That's what I need. And all of a sudden, what we see is what's going on. And I guess when I come to you and ask you this question, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? David knew he was God's chosen one for the throne, but he still had to wait. I wonder what you're waiting for today. Maybe you're waiting for, for your health. Maybe you're waiting for the health of a loved one. Maybe you're waiting for a wayward child. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse. Maybe you're waiting for a wayward spouse. Maybe you're waiting for God's provision in some way. Maybe you're waiting to just make it through the day because you so acquaint yourself with Saul that feels this harmful spirit tormenting him or her every day. I don't know, but what I would tell you is this. The Lord smiles upon and goes before those who are his children that have a heart set after him. And oh, by the way, he uses you along the way for his purposes. 
And just maybe, maybe, you will be able to have the impact on somebody in your life the same way David did for Saul and the same way that David is still having on me and those of us who love the Psalms. Because that's who he is and that's what he does. And all of a sudden, when we come back to it, we see, so Saul was refreshed and he was well. Because I wonder this, I wonder if the Lord were to look at your heart, if he looks at my heart, We've got a different heart. Our heart isn't a heart of stone. We're in the new covenant. We've got a heart of flesh with God's law written upon it and dwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit. What would he see? Would he see a heart that when God says go right, you, you go right? When God says stop, does he see a heart that stops? Because those are hard things for us. But what David recognized was this is that God was elevating David from the ranks of a shepherd of sheep to become the shepherd of his people. And David's musical ability enabled him to lead the Israelites in the worship of Yahweh later. God had a bigger plan going on. David could have never known it, but there was a huge plan going on. What was David's calling? To be king? No, God's, David's plan, his calling, was just to be faithful and to do what the Lord called him to do. And the Lord said, oh, give me a son or daughter who wants to be faithful to my calling on their life and watch what I can do with them. And that's what he did. I think Dr. Constable captures it. He went from being a shepherd of sheep to being a shepherd of people. He learned obedience in that field. He learned faithfulness in that field. He learned courage in that field. And all of that's coming to the throne. And oh yeah, he's going to become the worship leader. Because what David understood, these words from Jeremiah 18, Lord, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. God loves you. God loves you, and he wants to mold you and shape you for his purposes. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, know this. He's done everything to have a relationship with you. Our sin drove a chasm uh, and separated us from him, and there's no way that we can cross that chasm apart from what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We can't earn it. It requires Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And just like that, we get invited into his family when we say, Lord, I believe that when you died on the cross, you died for my sins. I confess that, I recognize that, and I trust that when Jesus did that, he did that for me. And all of a sudden, boom, son or daughter, now what's the calling? Let's be faithful and watch God go before us, that we might be the clay in the potter's hands so that he can accomplish his purposes in my life and in your life. That's what you were created for. You will find no greater joy than that. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. You can also hear each week's message Sunday mornings on 89.5 FM KMOC. Listen to our podcast online anytime at gracechurch.com or find us in the Apple Podcast directory. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.